On this special World Rabies Day episode of Emergence, we have a roundtable discussion with Professor Katie Hampson, Dr. Ryan Wallace, and Dr. Fred Lure on rabies and all that they have learned. Welcome to the Emergence Podcast, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Alistair King. All views expressed are those of myself and my guests. Thank you for joining me on World Rabies Day. This is such an important day where we really try and raise the profile and the awareness of rabies and everything that needs to be done. A few days ago, the WHO hosted a meeting talking about rabies and we looked at a lot of the challenges and what's needed to achieve elimination from dog-mediated rabies by 2030. That is our goal. That is what we want to do. And I'm, once again, recording this as I'm out walking. We did our own Rabies 360 challenge. I was going to do 360,000 steps. Hopefully I've done that by the time you hear this. We've had people cycling 360 miles, 360 kilometers. We've had people picking up 360 bits of litter. We've had people knitting little things for uh, neonatal children, which is really sweet. We've had people doing 360 minutes of meditating. There have been all kinds of people engaged with this, not just within MSD Animal Health, but in the rabies community as a whole. Been really pleased to see how everyone's been doing that. I wanted to do something special for World Rabies Day, and I was able to bring Professor Katie Hampson, Dr. Ryan Wallace, and Dr. Fred Lure around the table. Professor Katie Hampson is from the University of Glasgow, and she's out in the field in Africa, led a lot of the, the research from there, a lot of our findings, and really changed a lot of our attitudes towards how we can control rabies. Dr. Ryan Wallace with the Center of Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, has developed some amazing tools with his team. These tools that can help work out how best to apply programs, where to put the money, how you're going to get the most effect, where the impact is. He's been involved in education programs, looking at different ways we do outreach and contacting people to let them know. Uh, we did a, pro a project with them looking at SMS texting to make people aware that a rabies campaign was going on. So he's really been innovative in everything that he's led from on that rabies side. And Dr. Fred Lure from Mission Rabies, the really on the ground driving programs in Ranchi and Goa, uh, Malawi. These programs that have really shown us that vaccinating dogs against rabies saves human lives, saves dog lives, and it helps the environment, it helps wildlife come back, shows how powerful good programs, good vaccination programs can be. Together, all three of those have learned an incredible amount through their experience. So to get them around a table together to talk about what they've learned is a great opportunity. I'm really pleased they're able to help. After we've heard from them, I'm just going to announce two two new uh, awardees of the Rabies Hero Awards to, again, recognizing World Rabies Day. It's a good day for us to announce two people who are in the field working and really deserving of these Rabies Hero Awards. 
But first, let's go to the round table and hear from them. I'm really excited today to be joined by Professor Katie Hampson from the University of Glasgow, Dr. Ryan Wallace from the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Fred Lure from Mission Rabies. To get these three people who are major leaders in rabies control together at the same time is great, fantastic, and I think that is a measure of how we all see World Rabies Day as an important milestone every year in measuring what we're doing for rabies control. And I'm really grateful that you're all able to give me some time to to talk about rabies. So we can talk about what's happening with rabies control, how we see the future, and are we going to reach that grand goal in uh, 2030 of elimination of dog-transmitted rabies? I think first for people, it's a good idea to get an idea, a little bit of an idea of who each of you are. They'll have, everyone will have heard your names and know who you are, but to get a little bit more of a view of who you are, I'll start with just asking you what drew you into working with rabies. And Katie, would you like to start? Yeah, so I uh, I did my undergraduate degree in biological sciences. I was doing kind of ecological work and mainly focused in the area of con- conservation. And I think when I reached the end of my undergraduate degree, I'd been able to do quite a lot of field research, which was a lot of fun. But I, in the area of conservation, I'd come to the impression that you either needed to be an economist or a politician to make a difference. So uh, rather ironically, <laughs> I started looking into infectious diseases more, which was an area I had a fantastic course during university, which I thought had, had kind of enthused me on this. So that's what led to it. And my, my PhD was all about rabies, initially thinking about transmission between different human, domestic animal and wildlife populations. But then it really developed further with a focus on rabies and transmission from dogs. Ryan, what was what's your background into working with rabies? Yes, yeah, so I'm a veterinary epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, I started at CDC uh, this iteration. I actually was there uh, before vet school, but I went back to vet school and came back to CDC in 2012 through a program called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is a two-year postgraduate training fellowship where they try to get you uh, really, really high-quality field experience by positioning you with certain programs at CDC. You do basically a week-long speed dating session where you get to meet hundreds of different programs at CDC and, and see which personalities and which disease topics fit best with your interests. The rabies program at CDC um, at the time and still today was working on a wide variety of issues, both domestic and international, human vaccine, animal vaccines. They were also doing some pathogen discovery and divergent lysovirus work. And it really was the only program that was offering experiences for disease control and, um, and and learning about program implementation at basically all aspects. Uh, and so I started that in 2012, and I've stayed with that program up until now 2020. Thanks. And Fred? Yeah, I'm a veterinarian as well, and I was quite active as a, as a student rep in, in uni, and I probably entered the field of rabies through a, through a bit more non-traditional route, <laughs> more through the political side of things. And um, as a student rep, I got involved in the 
EU Veterinary Week, which back then had rabies as its main topic and just spread information about rabies in Europe. So that was my first touching point with the disease and got me really, yeah, really interested in the disease and, and what we can do to, to control it and eventually eliminate it. This then led to a volunteer position at the FAO, at the Animal Health Department, um, where I worked for, for a couple of months at the headquarters in Rome. And yeah, one led to to another, and I ended up being asked to to join Mission Rabies during its its first year. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a bit of a yeah different route in. I think one of the amazing things with having you three is you you all really go out in the field. I do a lot of talking about rabies, and clearly understand the kind of vaccine side and things like that but i don't get out in the field in the way that you do you you're out there you're seeing what's really happening you're understanding the impacts on people and and animals so your your insights are really based on the reality of what's going on where do you think we are with rabies elimination in how it relates to the global strategic plan and the 2030 goal of elimination i think what a lot of people don't realize when they first get into the rabies field is one round of dog vaccination or one PEP clinic in, in one county of a country um, is going to help those people right in that community, but it's not a disease control or a disease elimination program. When we talk about implementing programs, especially at the field level for a zoonotic disease like this, it, you're talking about years of training, investment, sustained vaccination coverages, sustained PEP, human vaccine availability for, for honestly, probably a decade or more. Uh, the the, the um, rabies elimination goal, the strategic plan, was really first brought up in 2015. So we're about five years into something that even the most committed countries in the world are going to spend a decade or more doing. So it's hard to tell right now when you look at the 120 plus countries that have canine rabies, it's hard to look at that and say, well, which ones have eliminated already? That's not how this disease is controlled. The big successes right now have been around formalizing higher level guidance and getting all the information we know about how to implement these programs uh, synthesized and, and consolidated with the OIE recommendations and WHO updated recommendations to ensure that our countries that are going to take on this goal have the best tools available to them. I think it's going to be the next five to 10 years where we see the implementation of those tools at the field level really having an impact that we, us watching diseases of, of rabies presence or absence in countries will really see a difference. Yeah, I also think it's it's important to to highlight some of the progress that, that has actually happened since the strategic plan has, has first been proposed. So through the implementation of, of proof of concept projects in the field, we could really show that rabies elimination is is also practically feasible. It's on a small level, admittedly, but it's a first step and it really started to stimulate change. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with both Ryan and Fred's assessment. I think compared to when I when I first got involved with rabies, there really wasn't this kind of push and energy and momentum towards eliminating rabies as a as a public health problem. And so now the energy and actual just really large numbers of lots of different projects going on all around the world is is amazing. And especially for example in in low and middle income countries in sub-Saharan Africa and in parts of Asia, things that I just I was not aware of and I don't think were really happening ten years or or so ago. 
but the the challenges most of those places are still quite small scale kind of proof of concept projects local authorities in a district here a county there and so i think now there's enough people and enough evidence that we know that this is practical and this has been known for a long time from latin america but somehow that evidence hasn't kind of seeped across to uh, other some of the other parts of the world that have endemic rabies problems but now we have this big, big challenge of how to mainstream this, how to scale this up so it's actually part of a routine part of government activities. It has dedicated budget and people are doing this as part of their sort of day-to-day programs. Yeah, I think, Katie, one of the things you hit on there that's been frustrating is in nearly a decade of, of rabies control is the, the the successes or failures in one country or one region. They're difficult to find parallels to other countries or regions to really learn from them. We have dog populations and dog-human interactions and bonds that are very, very different if you're, seeing in India where Fred works versus um, in the Western Hemisphere where, where we've seen a lot of successes. The, the number of dogs or human-to-dog relationship cha- changes drastically. The funding and government support, just what they're able to do, uh, changes drastically. And, and what works in one country really is sometimes hard to translate into a working program in another country. Those parallels are important to to point out and to get published and to, to talk with countries about what does work and, and doesn't work in their, their particular settings. I think that's one of the interesting things over the time I've been involved, that change in understanding. And when I first started, it was a case of, well, what's the one solution? And there was the thoughts that we had major problems because of all of the stray dogs that were inaccessible and all of this kind of thing. And now we've looked at societies and how they work with dogs and we've realized, okay, there are some societies where stray dogs are going to be a problem. In other countries, especially looking in Africa and some of the work you've been doing, Katie, these dogs aren't actually stray dogs. They've got owners, they're, they're latchkey dogs, you know, they, they go back home. And actually, if you engage the people in why you're trying to control it, then you can get access to those dogs in a better way. And that certainly seems to have improved how we can approach in, in some places, but you can't then just transfer that information from one place to another, as you say. You talked about the sustainability, Ryan. I think that's, that's a really key bit. One of the other areas I've seen a lot of change has been education, and that's where we get sustainability by educating people. How are you seeing those those areas working? Fred probably has some of the most experience in terms <laughs> yeah. of implementing really high-level education programs. My program at CDC is really focused on surveillance, epidemiology, and um, building capacity in these countries. Education is a part of it, but we tend to partner with specialists in education programming or folks that have developed really strong education programs to try to learn from them as well. Uh, one of the things we did learn from working with Mission Rabies is uh, some of their uh, materials that are really focused towards children. So once we saw some of those materials, we developed our own child-based uh, comic book to to help educate folks in, in Haiti, school-aged children in Haiti, about the dangers of dog bites and what to do after they're bitten by dogs. Um, but then also education more for the adults uh, along the lines of these hotlines for for recognizing a suspect rabbit dog or a dog bite and knowing who to call and what to do afterwards. And having these different education platforms targeting all levels in a society that has canine rabies is really important. Yeah, we've really seen that that the education and awareness programs that we're running alongside our vaccination programs have, have really made a tremendous difference. I mean, as, as Ryan said, most of our education materials are targeted towards uh, children, but 
even that serves multiple purposes from dog bite prevention in the first place to sensitization when we run our vaccination campaigns in a setting like like Malawi, where, where most of the dogs are owned. And we need to get the message out there that we run our static vaccination clinics. So it's really been a tremendous key. And we have so many great case studies and examples as well, where, where it really highlighted, again, how important these kids can then also be in the communities, really serving as, as ambassadors, spreading the word, educating from the, the young, educating the older elder as well. So um, where, where kids basically identified potentially rapid dogs, alerted our hotlines, called them in. And yes, it turned out the dog was rabid when when the parents just, just dismissed it as, at first. So those kids really turned into lifesavers for their communities. And it's it's all down to, to making these messages accessible. It's It's not difficult messaging it's it's very simple keep it simple but but bring the key points across and and you can really save lives i i love using children because i think they really have a lot of influence on their parents speaking as a parent your child drives a lot of things you do casey what are you seeing in the way of education well i haven't in in my own work i've not been like centrally involved in education or awareness programs but i mean engaging communities in order to be able to carry out large-scale dog vaccination campaigns has been absolutely crucial. And we see, for example, in Tanzania, that probably about 70% of people who are the ones who bring their dogs to vaccination stations are children. So um, um, my impression is that raising awareness and understanding in children is absolutely key. And I, I think it's an area that, as a community, we, we, we have a lot more work to do there. Another thing that I, I think education at kind of the, the grassroots level is super important. But if we're also really going to change change government policies, there almost needs to be an, an infiltration and an education at the highest levels. It's quite surprising still how many how many politicians, how many ministers of health are not really aware that the problem is is in dogs and the problem can be addressed through kind of not the not particularly technically difficult programs but trying to trying to kind of get those messages through has been a consistent part of our kind of research work and it's really crucial that many of the researchers actually doing this work on the ground actually have very close links with government so are able to kind of give their feedback and interpretation on what they're finding. It's one of the interesting things that on paper, this actually should be a really simple disease for us to control, I think. It's vaccinate dogs and will save dog and human lives. It's it's that basic in, in many levels. And yet we're still struggling to get that all done. What do you see as those biggest hurdles to rabies elimination? I think the um, dedication of specific resources to dog vaccination programs is really challenging because on the whole the health sectors has much more resource and it's sometimes hard for them to see the link as to how putting their resources into the animal sector can actually bring back bring back economic benefits and obvious health benefits I just think that link is sometimes really hard to get get across even though there is so much evidence from from so many places now and likewise much of the animal health sector has focused on commercially important diseases of trade 
So thinking about all sorts of livestock diseases. So so dog vaccination falls in in a big gap there. And it's often the case that there really isn't a widespread veterinary capacity that can actually deliver these programs at scale. Vaccinating dogs, as you say, is not it's not a technically difficult thing. And you want veterinarians in charge of delivering these programs, but there still remain some kind of political issues about actually potentially getting not veterinarians, but animal technicians or kind of people from the voluntary sector delivering dog vaccinations just to really really scale up the degree to which we can reach remote communities and large communities that might be beyond the, the, the scope of government services, government veterinary services on their own. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, the collaboration between government departments, as you, as you said, Katie, I think that's that's a real challenge. But I think this is also a challenge that we can address nowadays with the rise through mobile techno- of mobile technology. I mean, we can now better than ever record details of vaccinations. We can, through automated or or computer and phone-assisted integrated bite case management systems, we can really highlight that interconnectivity between the human health and and animal health and what impact the animal intervention has on the the human side. So I think um, it's... There are still massive hurdles to overcome, but I, as, as Ryan said initially as well, it's all about your your tool set and and having these these tools ready. And now we're I think we're reaching the stage which is just just in <laughs> quotation marks. We just have to have to apply them. So by using using technology, I think that will that will lead us a, a giant leap forward by creating that trust between the government departments as well, showing what is happening. And, and really highlighting that, that interconnectivity of animal health and, and human health. It's one health. What hurdles have you seen, Ryan? So when I joined CDC back in 2012, one of the concepts that was kind of hammered in for not just rabies, but all of the zoonotic diseases and neglected diseases was this idea of the cycle of neglect. Um, it's, it's this idea that if you have bad data, you'll have poor advocacy. If you have poor advocacy, you won't have your governments or funders involved which means you'll have no money to enact your program, which means you'll have poor data. And I think rabies, along with most zoonotic and neglected diseases, suffer from this. And what Fred said with technologies can certainly help overcome a couple of these issues. But until we have really strong programs to overcome these cycles of neglect, especially in a disease that takes, like I said, decades sometimes to truly eliminate. We can enact control rather quickly, but true elimination is a, a long slog. So when we're talking about rabies, you know, you have to have recognition that there's even a problem. And there are countries that a lot of us that study this disease know it is a major burden on their their livestock industry, their animal, companion animal health and their human health. But the uh, the, the governments of those countries don't recognize it. And they don't recognize it because there's there are not strong systems for surveillance. There are not strong systems for tracking dog vaccinations. And if there's not that data, then you don't have your advocates in country. We need advocates at the local level, first and foremost. You have to have, you can't have the three of us, you know, going to every country and saying rabies is a problem. You have to have people in those communities that know a dog that died of rabies or a person that died of rabies that is out there, you know, hammering the tin cans and and shouting at the top of their lungs that this is a problem that local contributors need to step up and address. And then folks like us are here to help enact those programs. And then the governments, we're dealing with low and middle income countries here. Uh, most, most of these countries do not 
have a, a sizable budget that they're putting towards any health programs, much less a neglected disease like rabies or, or a disease like rabies where there's confusion about where it sits. Is it a Ministry of Agriculture problem or is it a Ministry of Health problem? And when you have those fundamental confusions around who should even be funding this initiative, it can lead to major delays in implementing efficient programs. Yeah, it's the true problem with One Health. It's both sides see it as the others. You know, the human side see, well, you're treating dogs, so therefore the money should come from the veterinary side. And the veterinary side will, says, well, actually, the most gains you're getting are in humans. So therefore, when it comes, it's a weird, weird position to get stuck in that everyone can see the need. You've talked about post-exposure prophylaxis and low-income countries and low resources. Do you think that we truly now have the evidence that dog vaccination is the most efficient way that we can go about eliminating this disease? It's a really difficult question because dog vaccination will take several years to implement at an effective level. And during that time, while you're scaling up your program and you're building up that herd immunity, people are still being bitten. They're still being bitten by rabid dogs. And if they don't have access to vaccines themselves, they're going to die of rabies. And so it really is not a one comes first, which one comes first. These are simultaneous programs that need to be implemented and ideally scaled up in tandem. Uh, so we tend to, there are lots of different approaches out there and they depend on size, scale, funding, and abilities. I like to see some emphasis on reliable access to human vaccine first making sure you have this stopgap in place so while people are bitten, they have access to vaccines and they're not going to die from this disease. But that's not a sustainable approach. You can't continue to give these relatively expensive human vaccines forever. And so relatively quickly or ideally at the same time as ensuring people have access to human vaccines, you need to start your dog vaccination programs. And that I have experienced that uh, that, that is greatly aided by these mobile technologies, not only to estimate the size of the dog population, but also to show how effective the vaccination programs are and to learn those lessons and rapidly build a better program the next year when you go back out. When it was paper-based collection, we were taking two or three years to go through all that data and figure out if it had been a good campaign and, and what to do next. With mobile technology, we can do it in days. And I think that's been a big game changer. Casey, what are you seeing in your, the communities you work in and that efficiency of dog vaccination? How much is it making an impact? So we've we've been really excited by the degree which with which you can quickly start up and roll out dog vaccination campaigns and we've directly observed cases coming down, numbers of people seeking treatment coming down. But as we've all kind of discussed on this, you can do that somewhat locally, but if you're in an area which has got beyond your vaccination campaign has got large human and large dog populations, you'll still get cases leaking in from the neighbouring communities. So this is really why scaling up and doing large-scale programmes has kind of the, the extended benefits. But at the same time, human rabies vaccines will be needed without a doubt, and better access will be needed. The other thing that we've, that we've seen, we, we've done quite a lot of work looking at the access to human rabies vaccines. And at least in, in many parts of East Africa, people are having to pay large amounts of money and are visiting a variety of different hospitals in order to just find human rabies vaccines in stock. And that, that, is, that is a major problem. So I, I definitely think improving access to vaccines is going to be absolutely great, absolutely enormous. That's for human rabies vaccines. But the really 
great thing about dog vaccination is that it it reduces generally reduces the risk across the entire population. So even if you do your best to improve human rabies vaccines access, there'll still be some people left behind. So kind of the long term objective really is to reduce the risk at source through dog vaccination. But exactly like Ryan said, dog vaccination and improved access to human rabies vaccines really have to go hand in hand. And it's almost it is almost always the case that once you once you start looking for rabies, once you start implementing surveillance programs, you find that it's there. And those surveillance programs often start at the same time as dog vaccination programs. And we really need that data to evaluate those impacts of dog vaccinations and to convince the governments who are responsible for implementing them and sustaining them in the long term to show that they're working. Yeah, while it's yeah. a quiet disease with when you're not looking for it, there's not a lot of evidence, so therefore it's not a great problem. And then you start raising awareness and it becomes more of a appears to become more of a problem just because you're finding out what's actually going on. Sorry, Fred, you were going to say. No, 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 absolutely. And I, I think just just expanding a little bit on that as well, it's always it it's all it all comes down to to communication then as well. I mean, as as Katie just said, I mean surveillance programs often start only once vaccination programs start as well. We don't have the data before these projects started. So we do have a little bit of that that paradox as well that once you start these programs, policymakers then all of a sudden see the cases go up. So it it creates this this sort of negative feedback loop initially as well, which which often can lead to complications in in communicating with the stakeholders as well. So clear communication in the beginning as well, and just making making sure that everyone understands what what this means. And yeah, in in the end, it all boils down to to education on every level, as has been highlighted numerous times. Yeah, Fred. Along those lines, another challenge with advocacy in the in dealing with the political side of this disease is the the gains from investing in a program are seen four or five or six years later. And the typical term for uh, a chief veterinary officer or somebody in Congress who's going to fund one of these programs is about four years. And so you're asking political entities to invest in a program that the person who replaces them or votes them out is going to reap all the benefits from. And that has been an actual real difficult uh, conversation with different governments uh, that are questioning why they should invest in something that they're not going to be around when the benefits are really seen. Yeah, so an ongoing cost but no change is better than a big cost for something that's going to actually have an effect Yeah, eight years down the line so they're not going to really get the political benefit. I can see that being being a challenge for many. One of the things we've seen recently though is Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, have put human vaccine on on their list of focus vaccines. Do you think that's going to make a difference for us? I really hope that it will make a difference. I, I believe it has massive potential to do so. I mean, we, we definitely see major impacts when people can access human rabies vaccines for free and they don't have to travel huge distances. But I think the challenge is there's kind of a transition that countries go through from having human vaccines being really expensive and in really short supply to potentially really an oversupply of vaccines and just indiscriminate administration of them, which on the one hand, I totally understand because 
you really don't want to take risks with rabies. But in terms of long-term sustainability, the countries that currently don't effectively supply human rabies vaccines don't want to be in a situation 10 or 20 years from now where they're indiscriminately administering these vaccines without having dog rabies under control in the source population. So I think in order for Gavi to really have the, the best impact, there needs to be some way of tying dog vaccination programs to getting access to human rabies vaccines. We really want countries to be investing in both both sides of the coin in parallel. And so we really are sort of advocating for dog vaccination programs in parallel. And I guess we'll see what happens as Gavi <laughs> begins. So really it's great we're able to save lives today, which is essential. That's really good. I mean, rabies is such a horrible disease anyway. But it needs an exit plan is what you're saying as well. It's not just that, well, great, we'll throw loads of vaccine at the human side. That's not going to move us forward for for long term. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we do know that if we keep making human rabies vaccines available, it will dramatically reduce rabies deaths, which is exactly what we want. But even in countries which do do provide lots of vaccines and do really raise awareness about this, they typically have residual human rabies deaths, often in the poorest communities, because they haven't got rid of the problem at source in dog populations. And so that's why if, if it really can be eliminated through dog vaccination, it's actually the most equitable solution because it protects everyone, not just those who, who maybe have better access to human rabies vaccines. So I think there have been a few major improvements in the global rabies landscape over the last several years, uh, one of them being the updated WHO technical review series where they have now acknowledged the role of ORV as a supplement in some necessary but dog vaccination campaigns and the uh, emphasis on a risk-based approach to PEP, which will lead to a lot of PEP savings and in improved access. And then you have the OIE uh, dog rabies control program, the official control program that they've now released in their WHO, uh, sorry, OIE terrestrial manual, and then you have Gavi. And I think these are the three probably biggest high-level successes over the last few years. Similar to what Katie has been saying, there are some things we need to pay close attention to with Gavi implementation being not reducing the focus on dog vaccination uh, as a major issue. And then another major issue is that Gavi and anybody who donates to, to a country for implementing a program will be expecting that you can measure the impacts of that donation. And we're dealing with countries right now where human rabies is incredibly difficult to diagnose. Most human rabies cases are recognized through models and not through actual field-based surveillance or diagnosis. And that's because of major technical and infrastructural difficulties in diagnosing a human rabies death. So to receive a donation from Gavi or anybody and, and be able to measure the impact, we need to come up with very creative ways to be able to measure that for a rabies system. And I'll come back to Fred again, these mobile technologies to at least track where vaccines went, be they human or animal, and at least track that they weren't wasted. They got to their end person who was bitten by a dog or end dog that was vaccinated is at least one relatively simple way we can provide some measure of accountability for, for anybody's donations, Gavi or, or NGOs or else. 
anyone else. You mentioned ORV, uh, just where some people may not know that acronym, and I'm going to put a list of acronyms on the notes for the podcast if anyone wants to go and have a look. ORV, oral rabies vaccine for dogs, it's starting to be used. It used to be felt that that was the only way we were going to get rabies under control when we thought all dogs were stray. Now we know that's not the case, but there's definitely areas where that use of oral rabies vaccine is going to be needed to catch the last of these dogs if we want to get the disease fully under control. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen areas, especially in in India, where we where we reach relatively high vaccination coverages through parenteral, so through the injectable rabies vaccine. However, there there will still be patches where we just simply can't access the dogs, like for instance, rubbish dumps, where we can't catch them, where we can't inject the vaccine. And that's where where oral rabies vaccine will will really come into play and be a game changer to ensure that we reach this homologous coverage across an area to really stamp this out over time. Well, I think it's interesting that some of the newer science and publications are really looking at the cost effectiveness of dog vaccination and measuring efficiencies of different methods. And what I've really been interested in watching is that it's not just about using oral rabies vaccines for those really aggressive, truly unowned or or feral dogs. And one can make a good argument that those are usually a small population of, of the overall dog population. It's also, there's also new evidence that's showing that uh, if you're having to extend too much of your vaccinator's effort to track down these dogs, if there's a big group and you're having to use seven people with nets to to chase them all down and you only get two or three of them, uh, that's not, there are, even though oral vaccines can cost a lot more, the savings in time and personnel can actually even out and, and oral vaccines could also be applicable in, in those roles. But similar to what Alice there, you were saying and, and Fred, you were saying, it, it, no matter what, we're talking about ORV as a supplement to a parenteral focused campaign in, in basically every dog population that, that is out there right now. Yeah, I can just add to that that um, I totally agree on the, the potential value for oral vaccines to, to kind of get over that most difficult to reach communities. One thing we've seen commonly is that in the process of trying to go from kind of a small scale program to covering a larger area. It's often that dog vaccinations are not necessarily carried out really systematically. And so we've seen, again, using kind of these mobile technologies that have been discussed and just really good record keeping that if there is a real focus to making sure that all villages are reached in during a dog vaccination campaign, and that's consistently done over time, you're not repeatedly leaving gaps, especially in places where it's really evident the rabies is circulating, but just routinely making sure you're reaching all villages, that even that on its own makes a big difference in terms of bringing down rabies cases. That's really getting to understanding the different communities though isn't it what we're talking about there that there are different approaches there's the use of the oral rabies vaccine there's static points where you can stand and people will bring their dogs to you there's the going door to door and then there's the capture having to go out on the mopeds and nets to capture dogs which is always very dramatic when you see it the different communities need different percentages of how much you do that you know, some areas need to be almost 100% one, others will be the other way, and some you've got to share it between between all of that. So it goes back to that analyzing what's actually going on in the community and getting that data that you were talking about, Ryan, so you, you're able to see the feedback. Yeah, nothing replaces really strong leaders in the field who have 
done their due diligence in understanding the local dog population and truly evaluating how effective their campaigns have been. Uh, but we have developed a model that uses some of these pretty standard relationships between dog populations, human populations and vaccination experience, and the different types of vaccines and their ability to be delivered into these different dogs to provide at least a guide for maybe more novice programs to, from the start, know what that right proportion of different types of vaccines and type of vaccination methods they should be looking into. And we've worked with quite a few countries in either evaluating their campaign with this model or implementing some new pilot campaigns with this model and some very, very good successes for some fast, high quality campaigns right off the start when you, when you look at your campaigns and design your campaigns with these considerations. I'm right in thinking that model is available free of charge as well, aren't I? It is. I think it's actually on the Mission Rabies website, Fred, right? Yeah, it should be on the well, on, it should be on the task force website, um, on the Rabies Task Force website. Um, I was just about to say, uh, yeah, we worked with Ryan and we we evaluated the model and and we used it for some of our our newer campaigns as well. And it's it's really a great way together with the enhanced data collection through mobile technology to really drill down on how to do this in the most efficient and economic way. So it's a really really good and important tool to use in the field. So we're talking about, again, it's back to planning. You know, it's not just a case of rushing out there with a vaccine, but getting that understanding of what you're going to do and actually planning ahead to make it more a strategy that's going to last for a couple of years or five, seven years rather than, great, I've got a bit of spare money. I'm just going to go and vaccinate this this week and hope that that does the job. The reality of fieldwork is that some of this is very rushed and and you do end up in the field without the most amazing plan. But one way to still make it extremely valuable is to collect the right kind of data, especially early on in a program. It really doesn't matter how well you plan. There are going to be hurdles you're not going to anticipate. And collecting data and those experiences and then quickly analyzing what has happened and how well it worked and making your next plan is still extremely valuable. So I think one one issue early on in my career that I kept hearing is people were delaying their, their human vaccine introduction plans or their dog vaccination plans because they didn't feel like they had a really strong plan. And I just I think at some point you need to start, but you need to have a way to monitor what you're doing and learn from it each time you do an iteration of a campaign. And as long as you're doing that, you'll continue to improve and grow. And like I said, this is a multi-year, probably decade or more program that needs to be implemented. And so the first few years that you're going to struggle, there'll be things you cannot anticipate. It's about how fast you get out of that struggle period and, and find your, your sweet spot and hit that herd immunity and keep it going. And just to add on from what Ryan was saying, those kind of programs where you are generating that data at local level can then be used to feed in to much larger scale government plans. I mean, I think examples from Mission Rabies, from CDC, from all sorts of different organisations now have collected so much evidence and have so much experience of of successful dog vaccination programs and can provide support in helping people to avoid falling into the same problems. Starting any new program, you'll get pitfalls and challenges, but there are so many lessons that can be learned now. And I think it's really at a time when we have we really need to be building dog vaccination planning into routine government activities. And I think probably every every endemic rabies country in the world now probably has some experience of doing some small scale dog vaccination programs. 
And like you said, no, no one individual vaccine delivery strategy will work in every single community. But we now have lots of different types of strategies that can be tailored to local communities as long as we have the local knowledge and leadership in delivering them. You've talked about struggles, talked about difficulty in the first couple of years and things like that. It's really important to remember there is a really strong rabies community. It's a great group of people to be part of. And if you are out there doing something and you're struggling, there are people you can talk to you know, and who can give advice and have experience on different situations and things like that and who will at the minimum, you know, email, but in, in cases where where we can go to countries and actually help with that as well and sit down and really understand. And things like the, the rabies in America meeting, things like that, which is more than just about rabies in the Americas, are great places for everyone to learn, I think, for for the future. Do you have any advice for anyone on who is struggling? Well, in general, yeah, as you, as you said, communication is key and exchange of information. I mean, we're, we're really having the approach to, to publish as much as possible about our findings, whether that's in peer reviewed journals or through our website, social media channels. And we're always open to, to requests from groups who, who would like to get started. And we're always more than happy to, to lend our, our advice to these groups and, and governments. So just, yeah, becoming part of the, of the rabies community, as you, as you said, um, is, is a first great step and, and really, yeah, exchanging that information, learning what has happened and also what, what, what didn't work for, for every success, successfully published paper, successful campaign there, there are probably, yeah, uncounted ones that, that didn't get off. Yeah. Just, just reaching out and, and learning what worked and what didn't work is, is a great first step. At the highest levels, WHO and OIE, the World Organization for Animal Health, have established reference centers for, for numerous diseases, including rabies. And if you're really struggling with your rabies control program and are looking for a network to reach out to, uh, there are POCs listed for each of these reference country networks on WHO and OIE's website. So that would be another place where people can go. And then, Alizir, you mentioned PRP, Partners in Rabies Prevention, is a great resource, as well as uh, the International Rabies Task Force, the Global Alliance for Rabies Control. I mean, there there are, I wouldn't say too many, but there are several high-quality reference websites and groups out there that are uh, more than happy to talk about rabies until, until you can't stand it anymore. Last year in November, Mexico was recognized by the WHO, got validation of being the first country free of dog-transmitted rabies. Do you think that that is an important milestone and the things that other countries can learn from Mexico? So I think it's extremely important to recognize the successes that different countries have had. And one of the challenges for the last hundred years of rabies control was it was an all or nothing recognition. The only status for a very long time was OIE's rabies free status, which means you don't have it in people, you don't have it in dogs, you don't have it in wildlife. And that takes decades, multiple decades in some areas to achieve that status with no points of recognition along that pathway. And so Mexico's status of free from dog-mediated human rabies deaths is a great recognition of their progress towards true canine rabies elimination. So they're, they're well on their way towards that really end goal I think we all see, which is getting rid of this virus in dogs. And, and this is that first step in the first country to be recognized with this new 
this new status that WHO has developed. What do you think you've learned through your own experiences in the field? What would be the, the big things that come to mind? Katie? I think what's quite maybe surprising or not surprising about rabies is the epidemiology is pretty consistent. The the biology of the virus, uh, the effectiveness of our tools, wherever you go in the world, they're they're pretty much the same. The interactions people have with dogs, the kind of the the sociocultural relations is really the, the area that we need to understand both for understanding how and why people are being bitten and for being able to deliver effective programs. It's it's working closely with, with local communities and that local knowledge that will will basically determine whether your your program is a success or not. So I think um <laughs> I think whilst I went in there thinking I was gonna be doing a lot more on the epidemiology, it seems like I'm learning more on the social side, which is definitely not my area of expertise. <laughs> But is where is where I think we, we need is where we need expertise. Well, that's an interesting interesting insight, Fred. Well, I would say for us, uh, one of the one of the biggest revelations over the last couple of years has really been the the more and more widespread use of of availability of mobile technology and its use in rabies control and and the huge benefits it just brings to rabies control. The increased transparency, the opportunity to to actually remotely manage teams through that technology and and make rabies control yeah just just accessible to every level so even when you're say an expert if you're if you're Ryan in in the US Ryan can can through that technology assist the the management of of teams in in a different country can give advice directly so this immediate feedback loop that we have through technology has been an absolute game changer and I think has really enticed governments as well to to take up rabies control admittedly beginning on a small level but but the more and more data comes in and the more stakeholders get acquainted with the technology the the easier it, it gets to to scale it up another thing that that always touches me personally as well is also just um, empowering those those communities along along the lines of what what Katie also mentioned I mean what we've seen in in India as well in particular in, in Goa were initially um yeah it was it was quite a challenging environment to work in and now our our teams as soon as they see these yellow shirts uh communities see see the the trucks with the with the boys in the yellow shirts on driving through those communities and they get cheered on for for helping to save these communities and and they're they're getting the recognition for the hard work that they're doing out there getting these dogs getting that vaccine in the dogs that's that's really what what gets me going as well Ryan, what, what do you think you've you've learned with your experiences? Yeah, I've been really fortunate in in my career path and really the position at CDC to have kind of moved through the three big levels of, of rabies control. I, I've been down in the field, you know, like I, like I know Fred and Katie have. We've given our blood, sweat, and tears to to get some of these programs up and running. I've been bitten by dogs and had to go get my rabies boosters while trying to vaccinate them. Uh, and you learn a lot about the struggles of trying to implement large-scale programs in resource-poor countries. And you learn a lot about how the impacts of national and international policies affect how well someone can do their job that is down in the field vaccinating a dog or running a, a PEP clinic for, for children. And I think it's important to have that appreciation for for how difficult this is and for how impactful High-level messaging can be for the people that we're trying to trying to encourage and and support to run these programs. We can have the best guidance in the world, 
we can have the best publications with the best science in the world, but if we don't have dedicated people who are given the opportunities to run these programs safely and with the resources they need, it's not going to be a successful program. I've taken up an awful lot of your time. Two more questions. We do hear reports of people who go go on holiday from, they're in rabies-free countries, so they're not thinking about the disease. They go on holiday, they see poor dogs and cats as well sometimes, and decide to bring them back because these animals' welfare, these animals need rescuing. And that's been a way that rabies has come into a couple of countries in the past. What advice would you give to anyone thinking about bringing a dog from a country? I suppose the basic advice is don't but do, do you have anything to expand on on that to to people who, who see these animals and concern for them sure so I, I think the first thing to recognize is these animals in other countries have diseases you might not be familiar with and some of those are very likely zoonotic diseases one of those includes rabies uh, but there are a whole host of infections that animals from other countries especially stray or free roaming animals might have that you don't want to get, that you don't want to bring back home to your family or to your pets. And and there are national and international guidelines for how to move these animals around safely. And unfortunately, when people don't move animals safely and follow these guidelines, you risk that animal's health, you risk your health, you risk the health of all the people and animals in the country you're bringing it into. In the United States, for example, we have rabid dogs brought in to the United States uh, once every several years, and it requires a really robust local, state, and federal animal health and public health response. Those responses cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to make sure that the virus is contained and that people who are exposed and animals who are exposed get the right treatments. And uh, you know, in the United States, luckily, we have the infrastructure to be able to respond to those quickly and effectively. But in many other countries, Several hundred thousand dollars to control an importation event could be the difference between running your campaign or not that year, your vaccination campaign. Uh, so you need to really be aware of, of the downstream consequences if you don't follow the, the, the regulations that are out there right now for moving animals between countries. And then uh, my last bit of advice for it would, would be focus on where these animals live. Moving a few animals into the United States is it's great for those animals, but at a population level, at a really large impact level, Look at ways to improve the welfare of animals in the countries where they are, because there are a lot more animals there, and we can improve their welfare standards by educating people and empowering people uh, in animal shelters and in welfare positions in those countries to advocate, uh, same thing we're talking about with rabies, for, for better advocacy for animal welfare. And we all know improved animal welfare in a canine rabies endemic country is going to make our job of implementing dog vaccination programs a lot easier. So if, if you can get out there and explain to people the importance and value of a dog or a cat, and the importance or value of routine veterinary care, the delivery of vaccines will be easier and much cheaper. Yeah, absolutely. I can only echo what Ryan, what Ryan said there. And and also just, again, appeal to everyone, besides the, the, the points that, that Ryan said as well, consider adopting a pet at home. In your in your home country, in in a lot of a lot of Western countries, we still have a, a lot of animals in shelters. So, yeah, just please consider if you if you really want a pet as, as ryan said try to to help improve the welfare of these animals in these countries whether that's through donations to organizations that actually that actually do that that work in country um or through awareness campaigns but yeah if you if you really want want a pet and want to help to end pet suffering yeah consider adopting at your home shelter anything else to add to that casey no i think you guys got it exactly right <laughs> Good. And what can people do to help 
rabies elimination. You're a member of the public rather than a politician from a free country or an affected country. Is there anything that people can do? I think there are loads of things people can do, whether that's uh, just when you're in a rabies endemic country, inform yourself if there are rabies vaccination campaigns when you have a doc yourself, um, see if you can access these services, get, uh, yeah, just get access to that, to that education materials, uh, to those education materials. There's a lot of stuff available online, even if you're in a, in a country with, with uh, poorer internet access, there's still a lot of, of like low data heavy education materials available that you can access, be a champion in your community. And if you're coming from, from a rabies free country as well, come volunteer with us. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of our projects are actually open for volunteers as well. So you can actually help on the ground to eliminate this disease in, in global rabies hotspots and uh, yeah, support us this way. You don't need, you don't have to be a vet to be able to do No, that. absolutely not. No. <laughs> Anyone can join us as long as you're above 18. Katie, Ryan, any any other thoughts on what people can do? Well, I, I was going to add to what Fred was saying. I think in local communities, in local areas where there is endemic rabies, actually you have an important role in just advocating for your government to be adopting rabies control programs. I think a lot of times because rabies is a little bit hidden, a little bit underground, then politicians are not putting money towards these programs. But if you're actually telling your governments that you need these in your communities, that is what's going to persuade governments to actually really get going with their with their dog control programs. Make noise. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> and there are there are tons of different organizations. Fred and Ryan have both listed a bunch of them already. But it's possible for, for people in their local communities to actually organize dog vaccination campaigns, working with existing organizations. And I think kind of local champions who are really taking the initiative and driving these programs forward. I mean, you can see now in a bunch of different countries where one or two individuals have started doing rabies control efforts and they've really catalyzed things. So I would tell people to not hold back either. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we started the Rabies Hero Awards, to recognize these people who are doing some of these things, because there are incredible things that are being done out there. It is possible. Easy to think, well, one person, what can they do? But people do show that they can do a lot. So you've given me a great amount of time. I really do appreciate it. I think it's been really interesting listening to what you've been talking about and hearing your views. My takeaway message really listening to you is it is a long engagement. So don't think you're going to do something very quickly. You have to have the perseverance to do it. But we do have answers and a holistic a holistic approach is really the key here. You know, we've mentioned dog right prevention. We've mentioned education, engaging communities. It's not just about about vaccination. That is important. It's key to making a difference, but it's not the only bit. So getting that holistic view to what we're doing and talking to people and learning from other experiences. That would seem to be, to me, the takeaway messages from what you're talking about. Have I missed anything? I think it pretty much covers it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> Thank you all for everything you, you shared with us. Say so This will be coming out on World Rabies Day. The slogan for World Rabies Day is End Rabies, Collaborate, Vaccinate. And I think the collaboration is the, the key bit which you're all exemplifying so well. But I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I always consider myself lucky. The people I get to talk to on this podcast to 
speak to people with such experience, such knowledge. It just means I learn so much every time I do it. I did think the round table approach was particularly exciting and getting different views at the same time. If you enjoyed listening to that, let me know and I'll try and set up more of those. Before I finish, I'd just like to mention two new recipients of the Rabies Hero Awards. World Rabies Day is a great day to be able to announce two more people. And both of these are people who really do a lot in the field. They're focused in Tanzania and in India. The first is Machunde Bigambo. Uh, Chunde, as he is known, works for Rabies Free Tanzania. Before that, he was part of the uh, Carnivore Disease Research Program in the Serengeti Park. So he's got a very long history with working in this area. As part of Rabies Free Tanzania, he's their longest standing member and he drives an awful lot of what they're doing and helps their projects. He's out there really supporting a lot of the work. He definitely represents everything that we're looking for in, in a rabies hero. And that's why I'm really pleased he's able to accept a rabies hero award. The other person is Praveen Ohal. Praveen is in Ranchi and working with Mission Rabies you know, as a project manager. Praveen has done an incredible amount. Ranchi is a really good example of how vaccination of dogs makes a difference. It is really improving things. They've had great successes there and a lot of that driven by Praveen. At this precise moment as I'm doing my Rabies 360 challenge walk, uh, I feel particularly close to Ravine because he walked across a number of countries back in some like 1998 to educate them about effectively One Health. Uh, his, his challenge an awful lot harder than mine. But he's been dedicated to rabies control for a very long time and again another really good recipient of a Rabies Hero Award. So I'm really pleased to be able to announce both of those. That's it for this episode and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. We'll be speaking to you again soon. In the meantime, stay safe. <laughs>